Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Brethren, let's begin in Leviticus 23. Where we see the instruction for us to keep God's holy days, and in particular, this Day of Atonement, beginning in verse 26, where the scripture says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So here we are, a convocation. We're all fasting, and we've made our offering. You shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even. From even unto even shall you celebrate your Sabbath. So again, the book of Leviticus is answering the question, how does sinful man dwell with a holy God? And and we see here uh, in in God's holy days the whole plan that God has for mankind and the reconciliation of man with him. So prior to this, we we know uh, from earlier readings, we have the Passover. And and we want to make a, a separation, brethren, between Passover and atonement. Passover is really when we, the first fruits, become one with God. The Feast of Atonement is not our feast. We're now in the fall harvest. The Feast of Atonement is the reconciling and the atonement of the world through Christ. So Passover, we have already had our atonement through Passover. Then the Days of Unleavened Bread, where with the power of Christ, we're working to drive sin out of our lives and repent. Pentecost we receive the Holy Spirit, and this is the spring harvest. And now comes trumpets with the return of Christ. When Christ returns, those who have died in Christ before us, they will change first, then we will, or they'll be resurrected, and we will be changed, and we will meet Christ in the air, and we will basically have war with the world, to subdue the world. And the world will come under the government of Christ. And now, the question is, how do we have sinful man dwell with Christ on earth. And that is the necessity of atonement, that that the world can be reconciled with God. And then we move into the kingdom pictured by the tabernacles, which we'll be celebrating next week. And then the last great day, those who have died not knowing Christ. So atonement is really critical to the plan of God in terms of reconciling this whole world which is at odds with God. It's, it's at enmity with God. And, and it even shows in Revelation when Christ returns, men continue to blaspheme God. And so when God is here, how do we reconcile sinful man to God? And that's done and pictured through this Day of Atonement. 
Leviticus 16 covers a ritual that the Levites had to go through and the sons of Aaron and, and Aaron had to go through it once a year to reconcile the Israelite community to God. And there's a lot in this passage. And so I thought what we would do today is to go through Leviticus 16. And as we go through it, gain a greater appreciation for what God has done, what he's doing, and what he will do in Christ. So let's go to Leviticus 16, where the ritual associated with the Feast of Atonement is covered. Leviticus 16. We'll take this more like a Bible study and just go through verse by verse. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. So this is uh, pictured in Numbers 26, where the sons of Aaron were somewhat disrespectful and presumptuous in approaching God, and God killed them. This is a holy God. And we need to be very circumspect about how we approach him and, and uh, relate to him. And so the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. So I think having witnessed his two sons die, uh, Aaron is paying attention to this and realizing this is very serious, what he is being asked to do. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. And this word atonement, it's an English word, and it actually means at one meant. So it, it is being at one with God. The Hebrew word is the word kafar, and it means to cover or to expiate, to placate, or cancel, to appease. Now, King James uses the word uh, propitiation. A propitiation. It's where we have done something which angers God, and we're able to make an appeasement. And so that's what atonement is. It's an appeasement to God. Sin angers God, and sin incurs the death penalty. This is a way now that we can live with a holy God, even though we're sinful. Verse 3. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. There's a specific way. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. So unlike his sons, he can't just approach the holy place. This is a holy God. And so he is to bathe first. He's to put on linen garments. And then he's to bring a bull offering, uh, for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. So he has to do all of this for himself, just to approach God and able to carry out the atonement service. Verse 5. So, bottom of verse 4. Um, again, these are sacred garments. He must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. 
From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So first he has to have for himself, and now he's doing for the community. Verse 6. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering, to make atonement for himself and his household. So this is a, a most holy God. Aaron is the high priest, but Aaron is sinful. And so Aaron's sin itself has to be dealt with in order for Aaron to officiate on behalf of the community. So we're, we're going to have the whole community become at one with God, but we've got a sinful priest who has to officiate. So God needs the sin of the priest dealt with so that the priest can come into his presence and then officiate the, the service. Then, verse 7, he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent meeting. So there are two goats that he is to take from the community, and God tells him to present these two goats before the Lord at the entrance of the tent meeting. Verse 8 is interesting. So there's these two goats, they're identical. And verse 8 says, Aaron is to cast lots for the two goats. So this is not a decision that Aaron is to make, to say, well, I think I'll use this goat this way and this goat this other way. It's not Aaron's choice. He is just to cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord, and the other, and it says here in my translation, for the scapegoat. This is an unfortunate translation. I think we all know the actual Hebrew word is azazel. So, so he's to cast lots. One lot is to be for the Lord. The other is not for the Lord. It's the Azazel. So we've got two goats. They look the same. It's not Aaron's choice. God is going to tell him, this one is for the Lord. This one is the Azazel. And let's just compare this. And there's a bit of confusion about this where You'll hear sometimes people say, both goats represent the Lord. And, and the scripture makes it very clear that's not the case. One goat represents the Lord. The other is the Azazel. And, and turn to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> Where we see this uh, symbolism played out. We have two goats, and one is for the Lord, one is the Azazel. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 13, speaking of false ministers, false apostles in the church, Paul says to the Corinthians, such are false apostles. They are deceitful workers. They're deceptive. It's not something that it's easy to detect without God's help. They're deceivers. They transform themselves into the apostles of Christ. So for the person who is not guided by God, it would appear that these are apostles of Christ. And Paul says, and no marvel, no wonder. Why is this not surprising to Paul? That, that false ministers would present themselves as the true apostles of Christ? It's no wonder because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. If we saw Satan, we, we would think that he would be hideous. We would think he would be horrifically ugly. 
not true. He would be beautiful. He would be awesome. He would look like an angel of light. We would be smitten with his beauty. And with our own human discernment, we would swear we've seen an angel of God. And because he does that, Paul is saying it's no wonder that there are people walking around, human beings walking around, presenting themselves as apostles of Christ, as ministers of Christ, and they are ministers of the devil, doing a deceptive work. Therefore, verse 15, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So there are many ministers today, many, who claim to be ministers of Christ. How do you know? Which, which ministers really are ministers of Christ? Everybody says we should love the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, which ones are true? Only God, through His Spirit, can help us discern. On our own, sounds good to me. That one sounds good too. Oh, that one sounds great. Who knows? We need God to help us to discern. And let's look at this at uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 16. Where ancient Israel understood the power of casting lots. This, this is something that they would invoke whenever there was a decision to be made where they didn't know what decision should be made. And they needed God to, to point the decision out to them. Proverbs 16.33 where Solomon says, The lot is cast into the lap. So we're going to cast the lot. But the decision is wholly from the Lord. So casting lots is a way that we invoke God's decision. We, we don't know. These two men look, they both look nice. They both sound nice. They both proclaim Christ. We don't know which one is false. We need God to tell us. And that's the symbolism that's being played out here with the two goats. Aaron doesn't know which goat is for the Lord and which is for the Oswald. God has to decide. And so all Aaron can do is invoke God and cast the lot, and God will tell him, this one is for the Lord, and this is the Azazel. Let's go back to Leviticus 16. So we have two goats in front of the high priest. He casts his lot, and the lot determines which is which. Verse 9. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord. So two goats. One, the lot is going to fall to the Lord. The other is not to the Lord. He shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But, this is the opposite now, the goat chosen by lot as the Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness into the wilderness as the Azazel. So the opposite. One is, it falls to the Lord and it is sacrificed for a sin offering. The goat that's chosen as the Azazel is to be presented alive before the Lord and then sent into the wilderness. 
This word that's uh, translated scapegoat is also, <clears throat> it's uh, from two words in Strong's. The first word is Oz, which means strong or strong goat. So Oz is a strong goat. And the second word, Ozel, so Oz and Ozel, means to go away, to disappear, to disappear. So Azazel is to have a strong goat disappear. That's what the Hebrew means. This is a Mount's Concise Hebrew Aramaic Dictionary of the Old Testament. It says this of the Azazel. A goat sent into the wilderness on the Day of Atonement, symbolically carrying away the sin of the community. Some see this word as the name of the desert spirit, Azazel, to whom the goat is sent. So there was an understanding that demons were in the desert. And they were taking this goat and sending it back to the demons from which all the sins, the source of sin, is Satan. And so they're placing all the sins, Aaron is to pronounce all the sins of Israel on this goat and send it back into the wilderness, which is where the, the demons dwell. The concise dictionary of classical Hebrew simply translates Azazel as a demon. Azazel is a demon. Here in the Jewish, sorry, this is the, I forget what TWOT stands for now. There's another uh, reference book, I forget what, does anybody know TWOT? OT must be Old Testament. I don't know. Okay, I'll find out. Uh, anyway, here, here's what it says in this uh, reference book. The rabbinic interpretation has generally considered this word to designate the place to which the goat was sent. So that they, they thought that Azazel meant the desert, a solitary place. The final possibility is to regard this word as designating a personal being so as to balance the word Lord. So you have the Lord on one side and there's a personal being on the other. In this way, Azazel could be an evil spirit. And they quote here uh, some Hebrew scriptures, Enoch 8.1 and some other scriptures, says it could be an evil spirit, or even the devil himself, standing logically in antithesis to the Lord. So Azazel is this strong goat that's sent away. And there's this understanding, in fact, let me go into the Jewish Encyclopedia, <clears throat> which says here, involving the recognition of Azazel as a deity, the sending of the goat was, as stated by Namanina, I'm fasting, it's hard to pronounce these words when I haven't eaten. Namanides, a symbolic expression of the idea that the people's sins and their evil consequences were to be sent back to the spirit of desolation and ruin, the source of all impurity. The fact that the two goats were presented before Yahweh, before the one was sacrificed and the other was sent into the wilderness, was proof that Azazel was not ranked with Yahweh, but regarded simply as the personification of wickedness in contrast with the righteous government of Yahweh. 
That was the Jewish Encyclopedia. The Jewish Virtual Library says, God gets a burnt offering, while Azazel gets a sin offering. This view is reinforced by the widespread belief that the wilderness was the habitat of demons. The demonic identification would indicate that the original person purpose of the ritual was to get rid of the evil by banishing it to its original source. So the Hebrews understood that in the wilderness, that's where demons dwelt. And since Satan is the source of evil, all of this sin is pronounced on this goat, and it's sent back into the wilderness, uh, which is where Satan is dwelling. Look at Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17, and I'll begin in verse 6. I'm reading from the uh, North American Standard Version. Uh, King James will be slightly different. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord, at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and offer up the fat in smoke as a a soothing aroma to the Lord. And they shall, this is speaking about Israel, they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. So there was this understanding that uh, Israelites were, were sacrificing to goat demons in the wilderness. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. They shall be a permanent statue to them throughout their generations. And so this is substantiating the understanding that demons were in the wilderness and there was a time here where Israelites were actually caught up sacrificing to these demons. And then finally, uh, to put a final point on this, let's go to Revelation 20. Jews do not have this book in their Hebrew Bible. But here in Revelation 20, we see the fulfillment of Leviticus 16, where a strong man was to take this goat and drive it into the wilderness. Here in Revelation 20, we see the fulfillment of this symbolism. And I saw an angel, representing, represented by the strong man, coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, represented by the goat, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, just like the goat going into the wilderness, and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And the Jews, when they would fulfill this ceremony and drive the goat into the wilderness, they were afraid that the goat would come back. And so what they would do is they would drive it so far into the wilderness until they found a cliff. And they would send it over the cliff and watch it die. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says one one goat is to be sacrificed. The other is to be sent away alive. Because you see the symbolism here is the strong angel comes, it binds Satan, drives him into the abyss. But after a thousand years, he's to come back for a little season. So this is the the power of the symbolism of the live goat.
I'm emphasizing this, brethren. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12. I'm emphasizing this because the scripture is interpreting itself. And it's very, very clear. If, if, if both goats represented Christ, we wouldn't need Aaron to appeal to God to tell him which is which. Just pick one, because they're both Christ. But this is such a, a critical decision that Aaron cannot make it himself. He has to appeal to God, cast lots, and God will tell him, this one is for me, the other one is the Azazel. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. <clears throat> Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. We don't know. The Holy Spirit has to tell us, this is the Lord, this is the Azazel. It's not for us to decide. If Aaron gets it wrong, and sacrifices the Azazel, and sends Christ into the wilderness, this is confusion. The Holy Spirit has to, has to determine this. Let's go back to Leviticus 16. Verse 11, so after he has determined which goat is which, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering, to make an atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. So, so Aaron is inadequate as the high priest, because he's sinful. And the only thing that can make him adequate is if he first sacrifices his own sin offering. And then that atones him and reconciles him with God. And now he can continue with the service. Verse 12. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law, so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood, and with his finger, sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. You know, I'm, I'm so sorry for the Jews who do not accept Jesus Christ. I think if, if the Jew, or when the Jews accept Christ, they will understand his sacrifice at a level far more deeply than we do. We just, you know, oh, we, you accept the Lord, say this little prayer, and you can accept the Lord, and you're saved. The Jews understand how bloody an affair sin is. And to say that Christ is our atonement, right away they get it. They understand. For us, we have to work at this to understand this. We, we have to really appreciate uh, how much uh, death and blood and gore is involved here. And then we'll really grasp what Christ has done for us and what he's going to do for the world. Even while we were enemies of Christ. And while this whole world is at enmity with Christ, he, is going to, he has sacrificed himself to reconcile them to him. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering, 
for the people. This is Christ. He shall slaughter the goat. And you can imagine how it's crying out in agony and blood is going everywhere. And this is done before God so that there can be a propitiation, an appeasement for our sins, for the sins of the whole community, and in this case, the whole world, ultimately. He shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering, for the people, and take its blood behind the curtain, and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And I know Pastor Murray gave us a sermon at Passover time on the importance of blood. And let's just review that quickly in Leviticus 17. We'll come back to 16 in a second. But in Leviticus 17 and verse 10, God says here, If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. Why? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So, so when, we, when they were bringing these bulls and these goats and these sin offerings and burnt offerings, it was the blood that was making atonement for them. And it, it's Christ's blood that's our Passover. That's how we have become reconciled to God. Because of the life that was in Christ's blood. And really, I'm the, I'm the one who should be sent to death. But Christ's blood covers me. And so I can now I can live forever. And you can live forever. Because of the life that was in Christ's blood. Back to verse 16. So that goat is slain, and the life that was in its blood is what's making atonement for the community. Verse 16 of Leviticus 16. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, whatever their sins have been, Aaron is now in a position where he can make atonement for the whole community. And this is picturing that whatever sins men have committed, here in Canada, in the United States, in Africa, in Europe, all around the world, all sins will be atoned for by the blood of Christ. How, how do we dwell with a most holy God who cannot abide with sin? Blood must be shed. And if I shed my own blood, well then I can't abide with Christ. But if Christ, the Creator, sheds His blood for me, well now I have hope. In the blood of Christ. And we have hope through the, the, that's pictured for us through the Passover, but here it's pictured for the world through the Day of Atonement. He will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of the meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of the meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement for the most holy place until he comes out. Having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. I think I've heard there's a Jewish tradition that when the, most high, when the high priest 
goes in on the Day of Atonement, they, they tie a rope to his leg. In case something happens and he dies in there, no one has the right to go into the Most Holy Place. So they need a way to, to drag him out. Uh, so this is only the high priest can do this. Verse 18. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. And again, it's answering the question, how does sinful man dwell with a most holy God? And, and this is how, through this ceremony of, of purification. And, and, and when Christ returns after the day of trumpets, Christ is on the earth. How does sinful man dwell with Christ on the earth? Through the Day of Atonement. And what it pictures. Verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. So this is now the Azazel. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. So Christ has been shed, this symbolically. His blood atones now for the community. And now we have the Azazel goat. And we take all of that wickedness that has been atoned for. And we put it back on the head of the source of that wickedness. Which is the Azazel. He shall confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, and ultimately the whole world, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care, uh, this, uh, my translation says, in the care of someone appointed for the task. I think the King James says a, a strong man, a fit man, a fit man, right, which is representing that angel that can take the dragon and put him into the abyss. Verse 22, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Verse 23, then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. And just an aside, um, as they do this here in the tent, but when they have the temple and they have it all set up in the same way, when the Babylonians and the Romans came and destroyed the temple, the temple wasn't really unique in the sense that all of the different um, nations had temples and they had places where they did their animal sacrifices. What was shocking about the Israelite temple was when they went into the most holy place, there was no idol there. That God dwelt there and the Israelites understood that. Whereas all these other uh, nations, when they went into their quote-unquote holy place, there'd be some kind of idol there, and that's what the Romans would go in and destroy, or the Babylonians would go in and destroy. 
when they did it to Israel, I temple. There's nothing there. Because this is a real relationship with the God of the universe. And so he instructs them how to coexist with him. Let's look at this symbolism reflected, brethren, in the New Testament. Let's go to Hebrews 7. And some of this was read for us today by Joshua. Hebrews 7. We'll begin in verse 14. In Hebrews, we don't know who the author is. Um, it is not a letter. It's a sermon that's been transcribed. And, my, you know, if I had to guess, I would say it's the Apostle Paul. Yeah. It's uh, This person who is, is giving this sermon has such a grasp of the Old Testament and, and how it applies in the New Covenant and the logic of it, it sounds like Paul. It, doesn't, it might not be him, but it certainly sounds like him to me. But we don't know who it is. Verse 14. It says, It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Uh-oh. That's a problem. Because the priest must be descended from Aaron. And here we have our Lord is descended from Judah. So this is going to take someone who understands how to reconcile our high priest coming through the line of Judah when it's very clear that the priest must come through the line of Levi. And in particular, the high priest comes through the Aaronic line. So he says here, it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. There's no instruction in the uh, Old Testament that priests come through Judah. So we have a problem here. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Melchizedek lives forever. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So I, our high priest comes from a higher order than the Levitical order. He comes from the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. These are fighting words. Wow. This is useless. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. They were, they were just made priests. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will never change his mind. You are a priest forever. So Christ's priesthood came through an oath by God that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's a better agreement. The former priests were many in number. Why were there so many former high priests? Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Uh-oh, there goes another one. We need a new high priest. 
Okay, great. He served for a while. Heart attack. We need another high priest. So they are prevented from serving because of death. But Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek that lives forever. So he is a higher order high priest. And he was granted his priesthood by an oath. God swore, and he will never change his mind, that Christ is our high priest. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ, it's not just his death that is reconciling the whole world to him. It's his life. He is alive, and he is a high priest forever, interceding not only for us, but he will intercede for this whole world, as long as they're willing to accept his blood sacrifice. So he is able to save to the uttermost. No one will be lost as long as they are willing to accept him as high priest. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. So this is the, the daily burnt offering, twice a day. First for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. So what this is saying is the high priest, as we saw in Leviticus 16, could not officiate on behalf of the people to a most holy God, because he himself was sinful. So what he had to do was first atone for his own sins, and that would put him in the ceremonial purity to then officiate for the community. Christ is sinless. He is a high priest that is completely pure. So when he offered up himself, he wasn't offering himself for himself. He was offering himself once and for all, for all mankind, as the perfect sacrifice. I don't know how the Jews would listen to this and, and how they would not see the power of the logic. But I guess once you're, once you're locked into a certain paradigm, it's hard to come out of it. But this is powerful reasoning. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness, as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. This is the point. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So, so Aaron and the high priest were officiating in the tent that Moses set up and, and his helpers. Christ officiates in the true tent that the Lord set up, the tent in heaven. And this is the, the quality of the high priest that we have. And again, our atonement was at the time of Passover. This is now picturing 
his ability to reconcile the whole world to God. Let's go to Romans 5. Romans 5 and verse 6. It says here, again, this is the Apostle Paul. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for who? For the ungodly. We were ungodly. We were wicked people. And in our wickedness, Christ died for us. And so we needn't look down on the world and think that somehow we're better than them. We're no better. Maybe we're worse. But we're all in the same boat. While we are hostile to God, in His loving kindness, He sacrificed Himself to reconcile us to Him and to reconcile the world to Him. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends His love toward us. Look at His love toward us. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And not for only us. God loved the whole world. And that's why he gave his son. So the fact that the whole world is in sin, Christ sacrifices for them too. Much more than being now justified by what? By his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. So his blood is an appeasement. When we sin, it angers God. And God seeks the death penalty. Sin cannot exist with God. But through his blood we are justified and we are saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we, but we shall be saved by his life. And again for the world, they will be reconciled through the death of Christ, but going into the kingdom they will be saved through his life. As, as their high priest, and we will be serving with him to bring the whole world to God. Verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, in the same way, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And that's what we're picturing today, is this, this free gift upon all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 
And let's just uh, look at 1 John 2, a quick scripture there. In 1 John. First, uh, two, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation, or the atonement, the appeasement for our sins. So we have that. When we accept Christ at Passover, he is our propitiation. We can have a, re- a relationship with God because he is our Passover. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the atonement. Christ's sacrifices for the whole world, and God's wrath with the world will be appeased through Christ's sacrifice. Just flip to chapter 4, 1 John 4. Verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, and the sins of the whole world. Okay, let's wind down, go back to Leviticus 16. we saw the power of this symbolism of the two goats. One goat representing Christ and the shed blood being the propitiation, the atonement for sin. And the other goat representing the azazel, the source of sin, and all of the wickedness. After the goat goat representing Christ is sacrificed, all of the wickedness of Israel representing the world is then put on the azazel And let's go back to Leviticus 16, and we'll wind down in verse 26. The man who releases the goat as the azazel must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. So he has been in touch with something defiled. That's why we have to cast lots and know which one is the azazel and which one is Christ. Now the one that, the man that, representing the angel, to bind the goat and drive him into the wilderness, he must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. And only after he does that, may he come into the camp. Because he has been in touch with something that is defiled. Verse 27. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp, their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned up. Again, this is a very bloody business, but it's necessary to see this, to appreciate what Christ has done for us. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement, you must deny yourselves and not do any work. And again, Brother Morley mentioned that in his opening prayer, that through fasting, that's symbolic. We're, we're demonstrating our need for God. And, you know, as I look out and you're all quite subdued, uh, it really symbolizes how this whole world will be subdued. And will no longer have that, oh, I guess it sounds
sounds like I'm saying you normally have a haughty spirit. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But you're very calm and subdued today. And, and that's what we'll see in the world. On this day of atonement, when it's fulfilled, the world will realize how much they need Christ and will be humble before him. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you. Because on this day of atonement, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. In just a few days, brethren, we will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and what we're celebrating with the Feast of Tabernacles is God tabernacling with mankind. How does, man, how does a sinful mankind coexist with a most holy God? This very strange ceremony that we find in Leviticus 16 was given to the children of Israel. Because of all the nations on the earth, only Israel did God have a relationship with. And he showed them how a sinful mankind can coexist with the Most Holy God. It's because of his tremendous love, his willingness to have his son's blood shed, and that the life that was in that blood to make atonement for us, to make atonement for the whole world. And so we now have a relationship with God. And ultimately, as we see in the Feast of Tabernacles, the whole world will be reconciled to God. And brethren, as first fruits, we have the tremendous honor and the distinct privilege of co-ministering with our High Priest, Jesus Christ, to reconcile the whole world and make an atonement. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.